0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to uh, the Screw Tape Letter, says there's two equal and opposite ditches we can fall into with respect to Satan and demons, okay? Um, the, the one is to make too little of them, and the other is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, to to find a devil behind every bush, basically, right? Well, listen, uh, something similar can be said about our view as Christians of the end times, right? Uh, On the one hand, there are some who see signs of the end times, the return of Jesus everywhere they look, right? And so every earthquake, um, every new war that that breaks out, um, every new president that gets elected is obviously the Antichrist. Um, every helicopter, all those things, you know. And on the other hand, there's those who pay uh, little to no attention at all to the end of the age. Um, within this room, we probably have, we probably cover the spectrum uh, a, a little bit. Uh, however, most of us, I think, this is my take on my read as, as, uh, uh, on us as a church, that we probably lean towards the little to no attention side of things there. And just so you know, That's not a better ditch. Um, I grew up driving a lot of country roads, and it doesn't matter which ditch you're in if you're in the ditch, right? It just doesn't matter. Um, But my feel for our church is that for the most part, we pay very little attention, if any at all, really, to the end of the age. And some of that is out of disinterest, you know, or um, just practical priorities. There's so many other things, practical things going on in my life that seem more important. Um, Some of it's out of reaction, to, to parents or family members or churches that you've been a part of that got consumed with the end times and may still be. Uh, if you grew up in an evangelical church, if your family, right, um, if, like, especially in the 90s, you know, uh, comedian Nick Bargaski calls that the most Christian. Like if you grew up in the 90s in a Christian home, you, were the mo- you don't get any more Christian than that, he says. But if that's you, you probably understand a little bit of what I'm talking about. This over focus, unhealthy, excessive interest, maybe in them, um, and then listen. There's some of us who know something about Jesus' return, but also know there's a lot of viewpoints out there on it, and they're pretty complex. And they can be kind of nuanced, and so we've never really spent the intellectual bandwidth or brain power to to sort it out and really figure out where is it that we land ourselves. Again, often because it, it just doesn't seem that urgent. Um, And there seems to be a lot of mystery involved. Well, there is mystery involved in the end times. Jesus himself said so, right? He said, no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, No one, okay? Um, But he also said, keep awake and stay on guard. For you do not know when the time will come, but it will come. Friends, Jesus is going to come back. The the angels in Acts chapter 1 Promise it. They, they said, hey, what are you doing standing around looking around? This same Jesus who just ascended into heaven, he's going to return in the same way. Now listen, right now you might be thinking, what on earth does any of this have to do with Romans chapter 11? <laughs> and I'm really glad you asked. Uh, see, because a lot of people over the history of the church, and especially within the last century, have found in Romans 11 a lot of pieces that fit into their view of the end times. And For the last few weeks, I've kind of, if you've noticed, I've kind of been kicking a can down the road a little bit on this. Um, some of the pieces, and, and, and to really, we've been kicking that can in order to really focus in on what Paul was saying to his original readers. Remember, he didn't write a letter to you in 2023, he wrote a letter to the first century Christians in Rome, Jews and Gentiles, most likely around the year AD 57. And so we've been looking at what he was saying and why he was saying it to them and then working to draw application to our lives in our our age um, from from there. Well, a couple of those cans kind of catch up with us today, and we can't avoid them any longer. Um, So we'll address those, make mention of how they relate to how we view the end times, which might actually be a little bit different than what you think. Um, I also want us to understand something of the mystery. Paul tells us about a mystery here in our text today that he didn't want the first century Roman Christians to be unaware of. The Gentile Christians in particular, he's still addressing them in this text. In fact, he says he wants them to understand the mystery. Why? So that they don't become wise in their own sight. He doesn't want them to become conceited, puffed up in pride. See, he's continuing the argument from last week, isn't he? Remember verse 18? Do not be arrogant towards the branches, he told the Gentiles. Or verse 20? Don't become proud. He's still on the same topic here. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. See, Paul explains a mystery in this text. And the mystery is all about God's mercy. And this mystery about God's mercy, it causes Paul to marvel over God's sovereignty. That's what we're going to see in this text. Verses 25 through 29, God's mystery explained. Verses 30 through 32, God's mercy summarized. And then verses 33 through 36, God's sovereignty marveled over. Again, Paul explains a mystery and the mystery is all about God's mercy and this mystery about God's mercy causes Paul to marvel over God's sovereignty it causes him to say oh oh and the point for us today, the application for each of you today, if you're like, what am I going to get out of this? What you should leave with here today, right, is, is also this marveling at the mystery of God and his mercy towards you. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery here, he, he doesn't have, um, you know, Hercules, Perot, or... Sherlock Holmes in in mind. He doesn't need them to kind of like solve it all out. He's not. We don't have to be masterful mystery-solving sleuths to crack the mystery. No. When Paul uses the word mystery here, he means something that was previously hidden, but now has been revealed. In fact, he's been pointing it out to us already. In Romans chapter 11. Remember this is all one big chunk. It all flows together. Paul was talking about pride last week. He's still talking about it this week. He's talking about a mystery this week and he actually began talking about it last week when he gave us this theological understanding of history that we saw back in verses 11 through 12. It actually repeats itself multiple times throughout the chapter including today. Paul said, remember this? He, he said there was a rejection of the gospel by the unbelieving Jews. We saw this first back in verse 11, remember? And through that rejection, through Israel's stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, Gentile salvation, as a part of the plan, works to make Israel jealous so that some unbelieving Jews will repent and believe and be saved. We worked that all out last week. And and referring to it again now, Paul calls it a mystery. A mystery he doesn't want them, he doesn't want us to be unaware of. But also he brings the language of hardening back in this week. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, we got to put the hip waders on one more time. Okay, next week, chapter 12, it's going it, to feel different, all right? We're going to be way more applicational in that. It's just going to feel completely different. You're going to be like, oh, finally. See, Paul's building all this stuff through Romans 9 through 11. And then in chapter 12, it turns, right? It says, hey, in light of all these glorious gospel truths, let's talk about how to live. But right now, we're still back in the glorious gospel truth section, all right? He's expounding it for us. So put the the hip waders on. We're going in deep. Paul says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel, meaning not all Israelites in the present age have been hardened. Only some, only part, only part of them. Okay, that correlates with the first bullet up there on the screen, the rejection of the gospel by the unbelieving Jews. They were hardened. This partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So second bullet up here, through Israel's stumbling, salvation has come and continues to come to the Gentiles. In fact, salvation will continue to come to the Gentiles until Christ returns at the end of the age. The wording here is significant, okay? Um, Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That doesn't have to mean that the partial hardening is in place until God saves some set number of Gentiles, and then the hardening will lift. Okay? It can simply mean that God will save the fullness of the Gentiles, the full number of the Gentiles whom he intends to save. That can be confusing. Uh, Let me give you another example of Paul using this language, the the, the word until, okay, to kind of illustrate this and prove the point, point, hopefully. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, okay, these are words that we rehearse every single week here. Um, When he's writing about the Lord's Supper, what does he say at the end of that? He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's the same word, until he comes. Now, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26 is, is not, hey, one day you're no longer going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. No, his point is that we celebrate this until the end of the age when Christ returns. Now, we go back to Romans 11. Paul's point isn't to say, hey, one day the partial hardening will stop. Like once this full number of Gentiles is coming. No, instead, his point is to say the hardening will continue until the end of the age when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, what's important isn't what's going to take place after the event is completed. What's important is that the event is fulfilled at the end of the age. Christ's return, 1 Corinthians 11.26, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, Romans 11.25. Are we still together on that? Some of you are like, I got holes in my hip waders. I don't know what to do with these, right? We'll, we'll dump it all out here in just a little bit. We'll dump it all out in just a little bit. Back to the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. A partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, second bullet up here. Through Israel's stumbling, salvation has come and continues to come to the Gentiles. That was going on during Paul's day. It's going on during our day. Evidenced by every believer in this room. Uh, You and I, if we trust in Christ Jesus as Lord, we are a part of the fullness of the Gentiles that Paul's talking about here. Now, in verse 26, we read this And in this way, all Israel will be saved. (laughs) Um, This is the third and fourth points up here. Gentile salvation works to make Israel jealous, and some unbelieving Jews repent and believe and are saved. Listen, this is where all the can-kicking ceases, all right? Um, Douglas Moo, one of the commentators, he, he calls verse 26 the, the storm center in the interpretation of Romans 9 through 11. Uh, Sam Storms, no pun intended, says, this is where the exegetical and theological battle is waged in all its fury. The, the, verse 26 is the sort of stuff that end times charts and graphs are made out of, all right? In the storm center, the battleground really center around these two words: all Israel, all Israel. Probably already noticed that over in my bullets, I've got some unbelieving Jews will repent and are saved. But Paul here says all Israel will be saved. What's going on? Well, there's four major interpretations of all Israel. There's more than that. But there's four major ones. Let me give you those two. Let me give those to you just briefly. And kind of tell you uh, which one I think is most correct and why. Uh, The first view of all Israel is the ethnic, what I'll call the ethnic universalistic view, right? Meaning all ethnic Israelites across all ages, regardless of faith in Christ. Okay, this is the view that says hey, there's going to come a time where it doesn't matter if you believe in Christ or not, if you are an Israelite, a descendant from Abraham. You're going to be saved across all ages, living and dead, right? That's a minority view, but it's a view. Second major view um, within the major interpretations of all Israel is what we'll call the, the ethnic final generation view. This is referring to either a comprehensive or at least a very large ingathering of living ethnic Jews, either just before or at the time of Christ's return. So picture a mass revival breaking out amongst Jews who turn to trust Christ, right? This view usually flows from a view of the end times known as premillennialism. We're going to put some big, big names, big terms down on the table this morning, all right? Uh, there's different flavors, of, of this especially of the premillennialism so you got dispensational, progressive dispensational historic, covenant predispensational and you're like I'm out yeah, you're just like I, I don't, can we not do this today we're doing it, we're doing it alright um, some very smart people hold to the various flavors of premillennialism Okay. Some, some of these names you'll recognize John MacArthur, Douglas Moo who I just quoted, Tom Schreiner whose commentary is fantastic on the book of Romans John Piper alright um, now, those are different. Those guys subscribe to different flavors of this, but they subscribe to one of the flavors. The next view is the church view, meaning um, all Israel is a reference to all elect Jews and Gentiles across all ages. This view is held by very smart people like John Calvin, pretty smart guy, and N.T. Wright in our modern time. So what they do is they look at this and they see a spiritual Israel here, Um, in a broad sense, or the Israel of God that Paul talks about in Galatians 6.16. And then there's the remnant view, meaning that all Israel is the sum total of all Israel's remnants throughout history. This view is held by smart people like Herman Bovink, Louis Burkhoff, Anthony Hukema, Sam Storms. This is the view I hold too. It usually flows into a view of the end times known as amillennialism. And there's lots of big words. Listen, I just want you to have some categories for that, all right? Um, Most of this would be better suited for a classroom setting, (laughs) all right, than a Sunday morning sermon. Um, But from what's, here's what I want you to know. What's up here on the screen right now? um, The only view up here that we would call heretical is the first one. It's a form of ethnic universalism, meaning it doesn't matter what you believe about Christ. It doesn't matter if you trust Christ. If you're Jewish, you're saved. The rest of these views are held by Orthodox theologians and pastors. None of them are heretical. At the end of the day this is a secondary theological matter that ought not divide Christians. But it does matter. It does matter. For example, some premillennialists, especially dispensational ones, because of their view of Romans 11 um, that there will be a mass conversion of, of Jews at or near the return of Christ, put a massive emphasis on the nation state of Israel, even today. You you see this come out in national politics, okay? It's a thing. So in 1948, post-World War II, when Israel was reestablished as an official nation state for the first time in like 2,000 years, right? you can understand why some people got really excited. They saw this as as a movement of God, that the the end was near, that God was reestablishing his Old Testament people in the the promised land, the land that he promised to Abraham. If you couple that with a bad interpretation of Matthew 24, verse 34, where Jesus talks about events taking place within a generation, typically understood as 40 years, 1948 plus 40 equals 1988, which some predicted would be the year when Jesus will return. Some of you were alive during that. Some of you remember some of that. And so in the 80s, leading up to that, there was a lot of charts and graphs that got churned out. And a lot of that excitement was still tied to Israel. In 1983, actually, a prominent fundamentalist Christian by the name of Jerry Falwell, who was controversial, yet very influential in his day, even made a statement saying this, God deals with nations in relation to how nations deal with Israel. I believe God blesses America and has blessed America because we have blessed Abraham and have, been, uh, have blessed the Jews. I think if America turned against Israel, our value to God would cease to be. We are important to God only if we are meeting God's priorities on this earth. And the priority there, implied, is supporting the nation state of Israel. That's a pretty extreme view, uh, but it drives home the point. How you read and understand Romans 11 actually matters. After 1988 came and went, um, Jesus didn't return, just in case you were wondering. Uh, turns out nobody does know the, the day or the hour. Um, there continued to be a flurry of work on the charts and the graphs to continue to figure out what to look for in terms of the end of the age, and, and many still hold that we're looking for this massive conversion, a massive revival amongst the Jewish people at or around the time of Christ's return. I don't think that's the case. I hold the remnant view, and here's why. When Paul says in verse 25 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, we've already established that's not necessarily laying out a sequence of events. And he doesn't say then, he doesn't say after, this, uh, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, he doesn't say and then all Israel will be saved, he says and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Do you see that? In this way. In what way? Well, in the way that Paul's been describing already in Romans 11. There's the rejection of the gospel by the unbelieving Jews. Through that rejection, salvation has come and continues to come to the Gentiles. Through Gentile salvation, certain Israelites are provoked to jealousy and in turn repent and believe in Jesus and are saved proving themselves to to be not just ethnic Israel, but of spiritual Israel. This ties all the way back to chapter 9, verse 6, where Paul said, not all Israel is Israel, right? This is the mystery. And it's not a a nice, tidy sequence of events. The second, third, and and fourth point uh, up here, they, they overlap and overrun each other. They're all going on concurrently now. We might summarize it this way. God has used the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles. He continues to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And He's using Gentiles to bring salvation to the Jews. He uses the Jews to reach the Gentiles, and He uses the Gentiles to reach the Jews. He's doing all of that now. Anyone can get in on it right now. Jew or Gentile, there's no distinction. This is the mystery explained. All Israel then is the sum total of all believing Jews across all time, just as the fullness of the Gentiles is the sum total of all believing Gentiles across all time. And in this way, all Israel, verse 26, is the sum total of the elect remnant of Israelites across every age. To substantiate this, To substantiate his explanation of the mystery, Paul goes on, he cites kind of this potpourri of Old Testament texts when he says, as it is written, and there's this mashup of Old Testament texts here, right? He says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I want to note a few quick things here. First, that first line, it's it's actually from Isaiah 59, verse 20. But in Isaiah, it reads, A Redeemer will come to Zion. When Paul quotes it, he says a Deliverer will come from Zion. What this ought to tip us off to is that while Isaiah was looking ahead to the coming of Christ, Paul was looking back at the coming of Christ. In other words, they're both looking at the first coming of Christ, not the second. He's saying, listen, the deliverer has come. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus has. He's the deliverer. He's the deliverer that everyone's been waiting for. He, He comes to deliver Jew and Gentile. This is the gospel that he's been talking about all the way through Romans. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also the Greek. Secondly, this deliverer, he banishes ungodliness from Jacob. This is likely an allusion to um, Isaiah 27, verse 9, where Jacob's guilt will be atoned for and removed. Well, who did that? Who do we know that atoned for sin and removes guilt? It's Jesus. Who did he do it for? All who would call on him. And thirdly, he quotes from Jeremiah 31. He says, this will be my covenant with them. The new covenant. When I take away their sins. Paul is saying, Jesus has come. He's the deliverer. He's the only deliverer. And when you trust in him, it doesn't matter what race you're from. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you come from or the color of your skin or how old you are or where you went to high school or how you're registered to vote or how much money you have. The new covenant has been established and when you trust in Jesus, you come into the new covenant and your sins are removed. You're forgiven. You're reconciled. You're redeemed. You're restored. You belong to God now and you always will. In verses 28 and 29 then, he tells the Gentile Christians how to view the elect Jews who are yet to be saved. Look what he says. He says, as regards the gospel, they, the elect Jews who are not yet saved, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is Paul encouraging the Gentiles to continue to welcome Jews who would turn and trust in Christ. It very may well be encouraging him uh, him encouraging them to evangelize them. Don't be arrogant towards the branches, he said. Don't become proud, don't become conceited, wise in your own sight. Instead, instead understand the mystery. The mystery It's all about God's mercy. Remember, Paul here is explaining a mystery, and the the mystery is all about God's mercy. We see this beginning in verse 30. He says, For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now, notice the now, now you've received mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience, so they, Jews, too, have now, notice the now, have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they, Jews, may now receive mercy. (laughs) I bet Paul had a good time writing that. He's just recapping the mystery, isn't he? And he's saying it's all being revealed now. He's not talking about the future. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about now. You Gentiles were at one time disobedient. You were out. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, to use the language of Ephesians chapter 2. You were children of wrath. But now, Jesus, the deliverer, has come. And he's lived and he's died and he's risen and he's ascended and he's instituted the new covenant under which he takes away our sins. And this good news has gone out. It's a power. It's the power of God for salvation. And through the Jews' rejection of this gospel, mercy has come to you, Gentiles. The mercy of God. Meaning, you who believe in Jesus no longer get what you deserve for your sins. Damnation. That's the definition of mercy. You're not getting what you deserve. Instead, you receive, by God's mercy, salvation. And reciprocally, by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, the unbelieving Jews also may now receive mercy. This is the mystery. It's all about God's mercy. And it's going on now, Paul says, to the first century church. It's not future, it's now. And then in verse 32, he sums up chapter 11. Really, he sums up chapters 9 through 11. says for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all this is what the mystery is all about and Paul's not slipping universalism in here just in case you're thinking that with that bit about having mercy on all his point is not that God's mercy is coming to all without exception but in context that it comes to all without distinction Jew or Gentile Look what he's saying. He says, God has consigned, all right? That word means shut up, shut in. He's committed them all, imprisoned, bound all to disobedience. If we remember chapter 5 of Romans, right? He's talking about the guilt of Adam coming to us all. Adam's sin and guilt um, imputed to us, consigned to us. Why? So that he may have mercy on all without distinction. In other words, God has to intervene. We're all consigned. He has to intervene, and in his mercy, he has intervened for all without distinction. Look, I know Romans 9 through 11 has been deep. It has been thick. It has been hard, right? Next week, chapter 12, again, so refreshing. But don't miss this. Paul is saying to the Gentile Christians in Rome of his day and to the Jewish Christians in Rome in his day and to us in our day today, there's only one way in. That's the whole point of Romans 9 through 11. There is one way in. That's it. One We could have summed up all of that the last five or six weeks. right? One way in. You're like, why don't we just do it that way? Well, we want to preach the word to you. One way in, and it's by the mercy of God. The mercy of God. No one deserves it. It's not by your race. It's not by your works. For by works of the law, he has said, no human being will be justified in his sight. And he says to the Gentiles here, you're not special in some way. Don't become arrogant. Don't grow proud. Don't get conceited. You haven't earned it or deserved it or merited it. You couldn't. You're not owed it. You have no right to it. You haven't procured it or achieved it or accomplished it or or somehow in in your brilliance figured it out and got yourself in. You can't. No, the message of the mystery is that God intervenes to save both Jews and Gentiles who have been plunged, consigned into sin and disobedience. No one deserves salvation. It's only by his mercy so that no one can boast. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he said in 3 and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness. That's what's on display. Not yours. His. For while we were weak. Chapter five. Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. He's shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, still consigned, bound, imprisoned to our disobedience, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us. It's only by his mercy. We've been united with Christ by his mercy. We died with Christ and have been raised with Christ only by his mercy. We have peace with God and access to God now only by his mercy. There is therefore now no condemnation for us now only by his mercy. The law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death only by his mercy. The righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled for us only by his mercy. The Holy Spirit of God has come and lives and dwells in us only by his mercy. You've received the spirit of adoption only by his mercy. We can cry out to him, Abba, Father, only by his mercy. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. It's only by his mercy. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ only by his mercy. The spirit intercedes for us now only by his mercy. You've been promised glory now only by his mercy. We are more than conquerors now. Only by his mercy. And nothing is ever going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only by his mercy. Oh, the riches, right? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh! That's our response to the mystery being revealed. Oh! Brothers and sisters, your salvation is entirely independent of you. It's all only by his mercy. It's entirely of God. Romans 9 through 11 is to cause us to marvel over the sovereignty of God in saving sinners like us. As Paul's been writing this letter, or dictating it, Actually, can you imagine the guy who's like, you want me to write the O or not? Keep, keep it in? Okay, we'll keep, we'll keep, we're keeping it in, all right? That was weird, but we're keeping it in. Paul, he explains the mystery. The mystery is all about God's mercy, and this mystery about God's mercy causes Paul to marvel over God's sovereignty. It causes him to say, oh. Not, Oh. Not, oh? Not even, oh. No, it causes him to say, oh. And I want to overanalyze this powerful eruption of doxology here at the end of Romans 11. I think that might cause us to miss the point a little bit, but I I want you to see one thing here. When Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How, inscr- how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. He is lifting up and magnifying. Do you see it? God's riches, God's wisdom, God's knowledge. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40 and Job 41, cutting it in reverse order. Look up here at the screen. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Our knowledge is compared to the depth of God's knowledge. Do you see that there? What is our knowledge compared to his? It's nothing. Or who has been his counselor? This coincides with God's wisdom in verse 33. Or who has given him a gift? Remember the depth of God's riches? Who's given him a gift that we might be repaid, that he might be repaid? In other words, we have nothing at all to give to God to merit salvation. Nothing. No knowledge. No wisdom. No gift. No righteousness of our own. We can't give God anything. And in his mercy, he gives us everything. For from him, from him, all, all things are from him. From him, everything you have, especially and including your salvation, comes from a merciful God. Not only is it all from him, it is all through him. He sustains everything, including and especially your salvation. Nothing is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he preserves you. He sustains you. And because all things are from him and through him, they are also to him, including and especially your salvation. To him, to him be glory forever. Amen? Amen? Yes. <laughs> Listen, to say amen to this is to lay down Every attempt at self-righteousness. Every attempt of it. To say amen to this is to say, there is nothing in me deserving of salvation. To say amen to this is to say, I am nothing. Christ is everything. To say amen to this church is to marvel at the mystery of God's mercy to you. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen? Amen. Father, we praise you for the mystery of your mercy. And we ask that you would help us to marvel at it. Would you help us right now to to marvel with awestruck wonder at your, your love for us and your mercy towards us and your sovereign work in saving us. We give all glory to you for it. We boast in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.